Human thought never reflects merely the object under scrutiny. It also reflects, along with that object, the being of the scrutinizing subject, his concrete social existence. Thought is a two-sided mirror, and both its sides can and should be clear and unobscured. V.N. Voloshinov, a Russian thinker says. Karl Marx, in numerous of his works, explains how the Judeo-Christian religion laid the inverted foundation of the bourgeoisie mindset. Simply stated, this idealism presupposes that God, spirit or even mind creates physical matter out of nothing, as an act of will. This inversion of reality relegates the material universe to a subordinate position functioning under the tyranny of religious imagination. The bourgeois practice of modern science abandons or suspends this inversion long enough to gain profit understanding into various aspects of material reality, but this outburst of non-invertedness has its roots not in Christian dogma, but rather in the rediscovered logic of the ancient Greeks in Renaissance Europe, with the Greek texts having been preserved from Christian destruction in the Islamic libraries of Byzantine. This is the class and psychological background to Carl Jung's work on the human mind, which, after his break from Freud, he termed analytical psychology. Jung, typical of his bourgeois class, put more faith in his own religious imagination than in the concrete reality of the real world, and like his mentor Sigmund Freud, fooled himself into thinking that he had discovered a science of the mind. In reality, a close study of the work of Jung reveals that it is a pseudoscience created from a modern reworking of the secularized Judeo-Christian tradition. In short, Jung's work demonstrates that he was hopelessly awash in a sea of religiosity, and had completely lost touch with physical reality. In fact, one of the earliest academic critiques developed by early Soviet academics is exemplified in the 1927 work entitled Freudianism, a Marxist critique by the Russian semiologist V.N. Voloshinov, 1895-1936. This pivotal work was eventually translated into English and published in the West in 1976, and has had numerous reprints, such as the import of its logical devastation of bourgeois psychocentric views of the world. Briefly presented, Voloshinov states that Freud did not discover objective scientific facts about the functioning of the human mind, but rather mistook and misinterpreted certain and various aspects of his privileged and superficial bourgeois existence, as being universal scientific facts. Freud then encapsulated this pseudoscience into a body of work he termed psychoanalysis, and ensured the exterior bourgeois trappings of his life that had become to signify his practice, such as a middle-class home and study environment, together with a diagnostic coach and ample leisure time, were passed on as an unquestioned vehicle of psychoanalyze from one generation to the next. Voloshinov made the point that the sexual component aimed at all humanity by Freud to explain psychological functioning, actually arose from Freud focusing his attention upon a small population of middle-class Jewish women, and reflected only their cultural programming and concerns. Freud ensured the survival of his ideology by recruiting only young, middle-class students who lived in, or had access to, a similar lifestyle to his own. This is the background to Carl Jung's apprenticeship with Sigmund Freud, and the thoroughly bourgeois foundation of Jung's understanding of the human mind. Freudianism, despite its limitations, continues to function in the world today, because of a number of scientific myths that Freud and his followers developed and perpetuated. An excellent exposure of this Freudian mythology can be read in Frank Soloway's 1979 book entitled Freud, Biologist of the Mind. Soloway states, page 5. In my historical appraisal, Freud stands squarely within an intellectual lineage whereas is, at once, principal scientific heir of Charles Darwin and other evolutionary thinkers in the 19th century and major forerunner of the ethologists and sociobiologists of the 20th century. From this historical perspective, Freud's theories reveal otherwise hidden rationality, as well as certain limitations. Whereas Voloshinov exposes the inverted ideology of Freud's work, long before criticizing Freud became popular in the capitalist world, 
Sulaway reveals its mythical and pseudoscientific content. However, Richard Milner, in his 2008 book entitled Darwin's Universe, page 185, concisely deconstructs what Freud believed to be the scientific foundation of his theory of mind. Freud's conclusions about the origins of dysfunctional behaviors are therefore based on two antiquated theories in biology, recapitulation and Lamarckian inheritance. Most present-day Freudians, unfamiliar with the history of evolutionary theory, cannot appreciate how deeply Freud's theories rest on these two major 19th-century scientific fads, which have long since been abandoned by biologists. This shaky edifice of inverted mindset, mythology and pseudoscience, is exactly the very same foundations of Jungian analytical psychology. Whereas Freud at least tried to pretend that he was remaining anchored in material fact, regardless of how flawed this idea was, Jung, on the other hand, broke free of this contextual limitation and fully delved into the deep mire of mythology. In the realms of dream interpretation, however, Freud by comparison comes across as highly rational when he explains that dreams are the mind's way of making sense of experiences had during the day. Jung developed his mythology to absurd lengths, imagining all kinds of psychic structures which must exist, even though no one can attest to their presence, rather like the premise of a faith-based, theistic religion. Despite this ethereal basis, perhaps even because of it, Jung is not without his occasional brilliant observation or ingenious revelation, but his essentially religious approach to the functioning of the human mind limited the philosophical and ideological approach that he was prepared to take. An example of this deliberate blinkering can be gleaned from the fact that the Soviet Union successfully launched the first man-made satellite into Earth's orbit on October 4, 1957, an act of technology superiority that shocked the world, but writing in his 1958 book entitled Flying Saucers, Jung states the following, page 145, whilst discussing the theoretical psychological, sociological and cultural development of an ideal group of children. On the other hand there is something definitely suspect about these children, they are not separated individually but live in a permanent state of participation mystique, or unconscious identity, that precludes individual differentiation and development. Had they been spared an early extinction, they would have founded an entirely uniform society, the deadly boredom of which would have been the very ideal of a Marxist state. As the Soviets were successfully sending various dogs into space strapped into rudimentary, rocket-propelled capsules, bringing most back to Earth safely, whilst preparing to send human cosmonauts into orbit, Jung has this to say about communism in the same book, page 37. On closer inspection, however, things look very different, the exemption of the individual from a difficult and apparently insoluble task drives sexuality into an even more pernicious repression, where it is replaced by rationalism or by devastating cynicism, while the power instinct is driven towards some socialistic ideal that has already turned half the world into the state prison of communism. If this wasn't disturbing enough, when discussing what Jung refers to as special children who are different because of their advanced intellectual abilities, his obvious, racist, contempt and disregard for other cultures is readily apparent. Page 144. Their advanced intelligence is, moreover, coupled with a complete realization of their potential power for world domination. The question of how to deal with this menace leads to different solutions. The Africans kill the children immediately. The Eskimos expose them to the cold. The Russians, after isolating the village, destroy it by bombardment. But in England the favorite teacher introduces some boxes, apparently containing laboratory equipment but actually containing dynamite, into the schoolroom and blows himself up with all the children. Jung, here, appears quite mad and unhinged, but Flying Saucers is a strange book. Although appearing to be some hippie tome written by a crusty establishment figure, Flying Saucers, whilst offering various observations about lights in the sky, is in fact a product of the U.S.-inspired Cold War, and is a veiled attack on the USSR.
Jung is quick to educate his readers to the fact that whatever UFOs might or might not be, the Western fear of the Soviet Union is rational and entirely premised upon the alleged behavior of that regime. People fear the UFO because it embodies all the bourgeois fears of the communist system, but instead of Jung making this point, his inverted mindset interprets reality the wrong way around. He blames the self-generated fear in the collective mind of the bourgeois West, not on the capitalist individuals that generate the fear, but rather upon the imagined ogre of the USSR and its communist ideology. Jung completely misses the fact that all this hatred and misrepresentation occurs only within the mind of the Western bourgeoisie, in other words, only within his own mind. Nothing Jung has to say about the USSR or communism, for that matter, has anything to do with the material reality that actually defined the USSR or communism. Flying Saucers reveals Jung's true bourgeois, capitalist agenda, and his willingness to substitute myth for reality. In his 1954 book entitled The Development of the Personality, CW 17 pars. 284-323, Jung states, Though it seems at present as if the blind and destructive dominance of meaningless collective forces would thrust the ideal of personality into the background, yet this is only a passing revolt against the dead weight of history. Once the revolutionary, unhistorical, and therefore uneducated inclinations of the rising generations have had their fill of tearing down tradition, new heroes will be sought and found. Even the Bolsheviks, whose radicalism leaves nothing to be desired, have embalmed Lenin and made a savior out of Karl Marx. Jung accuses his mind-made enemies, that exist only within his head, of having the very same limitations that he himself projects into them. When Jung fails to acknowledge the presence or validity of the working class, it is he who is acting ahistorically, and deliberately writing out of history those he considers unworthy of life. This is not surprising, as Jung critiques the USSR and communism in a shallow or surface manner that involves jingoistic and catchy propaganda statements designed to induce fear and confusion into the minds that are exposed. Jung never once demonstrates his knowledge of Marxism, or of the actual functioning of the various communist countries. Furthermore, as he has been accused of supporting Nazi Germany, his silence regarding the fact that it was the Soviet Union that took on and crushed Hitler's troops, at the terrible cost of 27 to 40 million Soviet casualties, is most telling. Instead, Jung prefers to compromise his objective academic standing and insert into his work the required U.S. anti-Soviet propaganda statement of the moment. Throughout his work, Jung relentlessly demonstrates his inverted mindset and in resorting to basic religiosity. A theme that recurs is his habit of referring to Marxism, i.e. scientific socialism, as a religion, when in fact both Marx and Engels premise their entire theory upon the scientific rejection of the Judeo-Christian tradition, because its idealism grew out of pre-modern humanity's early attempts to make sense of the world, and was redundant in a modern industrial age. Perhaps this misrepresentation goes hand in hand with Jung's implicit rejection of multiculturalism as a concept, because, Jung thought, it watered down dominant, European, cultures, and created a people with no roots in the land they occupy, although Jung remained absolutely silent about Israel's annexation of Palestine. Jung's single work that presents these various myths as objective truth is his 1957 book entitled Man and His Future, CW10. Although he remained silent about the Nazi-German atrocities meted out to the Soviet citizenry during World War II, Jung does spend much of the middle to late 1950s willingly distorting the foundational principles of his earlier psychology in the service of the bourgeois class and the capitalist system. In this regard, Jung demonstrated more than a willingness to abandon academic impartiality and prostitute his understanding of Freud's work in the service of U.S. anti-communist hysteria. Again, Jung remains silent about the racist treatments of black communist Paul Robeson in America, and, of course, 
about the execution of the U.S. communists Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, but then he equally refused to acknowledge the McCarthy era of widespread persecution of leftists in general, in America. These witch hunts were certainly conveyed with a mixture of religious fanaticism and racism, but, of course, as a bourgeois himself, Jung probably thought that despite continuous proof to the contrary, which he chose to ignore, the capitalist system his class founded and controlled, was the best possible system humanity could ever construct. When viewed in this light, Jung is compelled by the history of his class to pour scorn not only on the working class itself, but also any ideology that purported to free and uplift that class out of the mire of bourgeois exploitation. It can be said that Jung carried out this anti-working class task impeccably. The scientific fragility of Sigmund Freud's theory followed through into Jung's system, augmented by an intense attachment to inner psychological phenomena, and the subordination of the physical world to the imagination. Eurocentric racism, almost certainly present in Freud's work, is given free reign in Jung's work. Both men, of course, rejected the principle of working class rights, and were ambivalent toward the USSR, although Jung was at times openly hostile, as are many Jungian clones today.